Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us for our study in the Gospel of Mark. We pray that it blesses you and that your mind is blown as you encounter Jesus Christ in a fresh new way. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. I love the pastor's prayer, and I hope you didn't miss it, uh, because we're going to kind of touch on that today, and uh, he brought up, and let me set my timer here uh, as a suggestion as to what time I need to stop today, but let me start the timer here, but um, I love what the pastor said. He says, hey, we have a, and this is true of all of us, we have a propensity to domesticate Jesus. Think about it. What do we domesticate in life? Anybody, what do we like to domesticate here in our country? Pets. pets. Why We domesticate pets. Why? We like them, right? I love pets. We got two dogs. We got Mo, a Boston Terrier. Uh, we got Nico, a, uh, 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 we got Nico who is a, a miniature schnauzer. And look, they're purebreds. I'm proud of them. I don't walk them often. Nicole loves to feed and walk the dogs. But when I get an opportunity, boy, I put the leash on, and I'm borderline strutting because I think my dogs look really nice. I love my dogs. And, but we domesticate them because we like them. They sit in our lap. Let's be honest. Uh, the dogs, for the most part, always obey us if they're chewing on something they shouldn't, and we yell at them or we say something. They, you know, that tail goes down, and they, we like them because they listen listen to us, they obey us, uh, and we get some type of uh, gratitude or sense of, of uh, famil- fulfillment out of it. But what are, what are the things that we uh, domesticate? I don't want uh, sp- to spill out our, our farmer or our rancher in the, uh, in the service today, but we domesticate a lot of things, don't we? And uh, we domesticate cows, right? Because we can get something from them. We can get milk. We domesticate uh, chickens because we like the eggs. We domesticate domesticate turkeys because, let's be honest, it's right around the corner, and I like to roll them around in that Cajun seasoning and fry them in peanut butter oil uh, for about uh, uh, 56 meetings. It's absolutely delicious. But here's the point. That same drive that we had to domesticate animals is the same drive that we have to domesticate Jesus. And if we're not careful, we can kind of minimize Jesus, kind of put him on a leash and lead him around. Right, and we domesticate, and we go to Jesus, and our relationship with Jesus is not so much one of worship and adoration, but it's more of, hey, uh, Jesus provides something for me. Jesus gives me something. Jesus uh, wants to give. He wants to do something. Right, and much of our time with Jesus is me, 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 I, 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 I need, need, need. I ask, I ask, I ask. Right, and so we really want to let Jesus get out of the box. We want to take him off the leash, and we want to let God's Spirit uh, run freely and work in our hearts today, and work in our church today. So we're going to be in Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse twenty-two. And I'm just going to read a couple verses here in Mark eight, uh, verses twenty-two and uh, twenty-three. And this is Jesus. He's taking his uh, disciples on a trip. It's a two hundred and fifty-mile trip, approximately, and he's crisscrossing uh, Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. And I want to propose to you that it's not so much about meeting or reaching a destination. He doesn't have an ETA. Uh, He's not traveling from place to place to place to place and keeping an itinerary, 
right? Uh, he has a purpose here. And much like he worked in the lives of the disciples, he works in our life. He's leading us around, and it doesn't always make sense. And there's stops and starts, and it twists and it turns, and it goes up and it goes down. And sometimes we feel like we've hit a dead-end life. But the bottom line is this, that Jesus is always with, him, with us, and he's not necessarily concerned about us reaching a destination or achieving a goal or marking the box. What he's most concerned about is transforming us through the power of God's Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ. I had a conversation after our first service with someone and they said, how do you know if you're in the middle of God's will? It just doesn't feel good. And I says, I know. Sometimes being in the center of God's will is awful. It doesn't feel good. It cuts totally against the grain of my thoughts and my feelings and my opinions. It totally brings into submission my hopes, my dreams, my visions, the things that I hope to achieve. And sometimes being right in the middle of God's will is very uncomfortable. And can I be as honest to say that it's not that appealing and it's not fun. Sometimes being in the center of God's will is really painful, and it's lonely, and it's trying, and it's a tribulation, and you're really crying out, and you're asking God, where are you in the midst of the mess? And she said, or she asked, how do you know that you're in the center of God's will? And I said, this is my approach. If I have a sincere, and I mean sincere, if I have a sincere devotion and relationship with Jesus Christ, and I spend time with God in his word and worship over and over and over again, habitually. I know that his word's not going to return void, that it's always molding and shaping me. And so as I immerse myself, as I baptize myself in God's living word, I'm gonna, by default, I'm going to take on his thoughts, which means I'm going to make decisions in accordance to his will. So I never have to doubt if I'm in the center of God's will, if I know I have a sincere devotion to him and I love him and I trust him and I'm humble before him. And when he convicts me, here's the key thing that we miss, that when he convicts me of sin, that I actually agree with him. And I say, you're right, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Help me, empower me to turn away from sin so that I can be transformed into the image of Jesus. And it's a process over and over and over again. Broken, humility, openness, acceptance, trust, obedience, faithfulness, blessing at the end. And it's a process over and over and over again. It's a process that God walked his disciples through or Jesus walked his disciples through. So here in Mark chapter 8, and I'm just getting wound up here this morning. God's put a lot in my heart. I hope you uh, uh, understand that or see that. Hopefully it's not uh, too much, but God just put a deposit, Pastor. God just put a deposit in my heart over this as I study and pray. But Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, when they arrived at Bethesda, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Listen carefully in verse 23. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village, led him out of the village, and then spitting on the man's eyes, turn to your neighbor and spit in their eyes. He laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? 
Can you see anything now? Now, I grew up as a military kid, and I spent seven years in Arizona coming up from, from about first grade to uh, 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 eighth grade. Eighth grade, I, uh, we moved over to Germany, and I spent three years in Germany. And uh, the seven years in Arizona, I loved Arizona because I was a Cub Scout, and I went camping, hiking, uh, canoeing, fishing, hunting, you name it. I really love the outdoors, and I love that environment. Uh, now, I will be honest with you. If I were to go back now today at my age and in my health, I probably wouldn't like it, you know. Uh, I have some friends that are out there from other places, and uh, every summer, uh, I always post something on Facebook, you know, how do you like Arizona now? I hear it's a dry heat. Yeah, it's 115 degrees, but it's a dry heat. I remember in Arizona that I was a young guy, and I had a skateboard and a bicycle, and I'd hop on the bicycle, and I'd go about my newspaper route, and I could look down the road, the main street of the base, and the ripples, the heat waves coming off the road were like six, eight feet high in Arizona. It was extremely hot. But one thing that I really liked about Arizona was our vacation to the Grand Canyon. Now, uh, much to your surprise, I predate the internet. I predate cell phones. I predate the beepers. I'm not going to give you my age. I still have some issues of vanity that I'm wrestling with with God over. I wish I was a young stud like uh, this guy here on the front row here. But, you know, time takes its toll on us. And so... We were planning a trip to uh, the Grand Canyon. And so back in my day, I'd go to the library, and I'd look at the books, and I'd read all about it. We had just three channels. I was the remote control in the house. My dad would say ABC, NBC, or CBS, and I'd run up there, and I'd turn it. And if we wanted to watch the football game, more than likely, we'd have to get tinfoil out and put it on the antenna. But you get the picture. I came up in the old days. I came up in the day and age where when the uh, lights went on on the street corners, I had 30 minutes to get home, right? So there was no internet. I couldn't uh, look at 4K videos about the Grand Canyon. Have you ever noticed that? I shop at BJ's and I go by and those big screen TVs have 4K video. It's impressive. The best thing that I had growing up was National Geographic. Slick, shiny, colorful, right? And I'd peruse uh, the, the National Geographic on the Grand Canyon, and my thoughts would run wild. I'd be filled with expectations. I was only imagining what it would be like to actually see this place live in person. Let me ask you this. Anybody here been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. If you could, if you could describe the Grand Canyon in one word, how would you describe it? Beautiful. Anybody else? Huge. Big? Hot? You, went, you must have gone during the summer, right? Huh? Yeah. So you could, but listen, if you did your research and you went to the Grand Canyon, you'd realize it was, it's much more, uh, uh, it's much different than you ever anticipated. I remember getting out of the car and running up to the rail and looking out, and I was just mesmerized. This was just stunning. This is huge. In fact, it's bigger, it's about, it's bigger than uh, the state of Rhode Island itself. And I remember just standing there and just kind of taking it in as a kid. This was a dream to go uh, to the Grand Canyon, just soaking it up. And I realized now today my expectations were so low. They were so 
basic. They were so uninformed. The resources that I had in terms of researching this trip paled into comparison to actually visiting a place and standing there on the rim and taking in the beauty of the Grand Canyon. I want to propose to you that that's much similar or that's similar to the experience that the disciples had with Jesus. That They followed him for three years. This was his third preaching tour. Everybody in the region knew about Jesus. This was like a Grateful Dead concert. People were dressed up. They were camping out. They were making their beads and bracelets and selling it for the next... Some of you know what I'm talking about. You're of my generation and the Grateful Dead fan. They were fanatics going from place to place to place. No jobs, no homes, just this small community huddling in and following this band. They thought they were the Messiah. They were the best thing that ever come on the music scene. And they were selling out and following this band all over the country. And the disciples, much like those groupies, were following Jesus all throughout the countryside, and they just weren't getting it. Their hopes and their dreams and their expectations and the things that they wanted Jesus to do in their lives and fulfill in the community around them were not coming to pass. And he was not meeting the expectations of even the disciples that had followed him for three years. And so Jesus walks up in this particular individual and he grabs this person by the hand and he leads them out into the countryside, away from the crowd. And he spits on this individual, and he puts his hand on him, and he says, can you see anything? What do you see? And the guy immediately says, I see something, something that looks like trees walking around, but I don't see clearly. I want to propose to you that we probably find ourselves right there in that place in this time and this uh, 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 meeting. Think about it. I want to see more of Jesus in my life. I want to see more of Jesus' work around my life. I want to see more of Jesus' work in people's lives around me. But the truth be told, I don't see Jesus that well. I have one perspective based on my family, my experiences, my parents, my religious experiences, the people that I've been discipled with. I have one way of seeing Jesus. That's why the body of believers needs to be the body of believers. Because if you follow me around long enough, you're going to bump into some erroneous thoughts about Jesus. You're going to bump into some misconceptions or some erroneous expectations about Jesus. That's why one man doesn't have a lock in terms of who Jesus is among the body of Christ. God wants to use all of us in his body, all of us in the kingdom. There's no big eyes and there's no little use. God wants all of us to have vision. God wants all of us to see him from a 2020 perspective. God wants all of us collectively to respond to the one true right living God, Jesus. And that means we have to battle against our perceptions, our misconceptions, who we think he is and who he isn't, what he does and what he doesn't, what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do. We have to work through and wrestle with that because the truth of the matter is, is we're living much like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that we're living in a dark period. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, in the same way we can see 
and understand only a little about God right now is if we were peering at his reflection in a poor mirror, but here's the hope. And I'm hoping we don't have to wait for it until heaven, but here's the hope. But someday, can somebody say someday? Can somebody say someday and really mean it? Someday, listen, but someday we're going to see him in his completeness. completeness. What a promise. We're going to see Jesus face to face. Now all that we know is hazy and blurred, but then I will see everything clearly, just as clearly as God sees into my heart right now. Do you feel the struggle Each and every day we wake up. Each and every day I wake up and I open up God's word. I come with murkiness. I come with blindness. I come with a sense of spiritual cataracts. I come with a sense I can't see him clearly. But in my heart and in my soul, I want more. I long for more. I want to see more of him. Not because I just want to be filled with knowledge, but because I know the power of his word in my heart and in my soul. And I know where I once was and where I'm at today. I know that I was a sinner and I was lost. Now I'm saved and I'm heaven bound. I know what it means to be hopeless, lost, desperate, and defeated. Now I know what it means to be delivered and filled with hope and expectation knowing that one day that I see him on the cross, but one day I'm going to get in front of Jesus and I'm going to see him face to face. What a moment. Words can't even describe. Words can't even describe the moment that you, for the first time, shed the sin, shed the wretchedness, And you step into the fullness of Christ in you. And you see clearly. And you hear clearly. And you love unadulterated. And you embrace as if he's the only one. What a miraculous moment when we go from blindness to seeing, when we move from not understanding who he is to understanding who he is and what he's about. Listen, when Jesus walked up to this man and he touched him once and he says, do you see anything? He said, you know, I see something, something like trees walking around, but I don't see clearly. I think there's a deeper message here. Jesus is spending time, again, he's on his third preaching tour with the disciples, and we've been building up to this moment since chapter one, where Mark comes right out of the gate, and he says, hey, listen, I'm going to talk to you about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He lays it right out. I'm going to talk to you about the disciple. I'm going to talk to you, talk to you about the Messiah. All throughout Mark, what we've building, been building up is this, that Jesus wants to answer one question. 
He wants to answer one question alone. It's the most pivotal question in all of humanity. It's a monumental moment when Jesus, by way of his spirit, steps into your life and asks you this question, who do you say that I am? And he's walking into his disciples' life through Mark and the inspired writings of Mark. And he wants to answer one question alone, just one solitary question. Who is this man named Jesus? In chapter 1, Mark uh, writes about three different answers. We see that uh, Mark talks about John the Baptist, and Jesus comes out to, to, to want to be baptized by John the Baptist, and John the Baptist automatically puts the brake on and says, hold on, hold on, hold on, I'm not worthy of baptizing you, uh, you need to be baptizing me, and Jesus insists that I want to be baptized by you, and so John the Baptist proclaims, and he defines, or he answers that question, and says, you're the Lord, and then we see that the Pharisees are clamoring, and they're getting around Jesus, and they have had their own opinions and thoughts about Jesus. In fact, they say, well, we've come to the conclusion that Jesus is a demon, and in fact, he could possibly be the prince of all demons. We see that at the baptism, uh, Jesus is laid down, he's buried in the, in the Jordan, and when he rises up, uh, heaven is separated, and the dove comes down, and we hear a voice coming out of the clouds that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So we see in chapter 1 that Mark is trying to build up and explain and answer the question, who is this man named Jesus? Then we move into uh, uh, chapter 4, and we see that uh, Jesus is calming the storm, and, uh, and he's calming the storm, so he's a weatherman, and he brings the storm to cease. And again, this is another attempt at Jesus trying to describe or answer the question that Mark's asking. Who is this man? We get to chapter 6. Jesus feeds another 5,000 that are following him. And then he follows up that. If that's not enough of feeding 5,000 plus women and children, if that's not enough, he, we find him walking on water. And they were all terrified. And then they were coming no closer to understanding who Jesus was. Chapter after chapter after chapter. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Every supernatural act after supernatural act, they were no closer to understanding who Jesus was. In fact, they become more fuzzy, more hazy, and more disoriented about who Jesus was altogether. The more they time, the more time they spent with Jesus, the less they really knew about him. Who can identify with that? Every time we open a word and we get before him, I walk away with more questions than answers. I have less understanding. He sheds a little light on me or something, and I walk away with more darkness. That's the, 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 the relationship there. And we're always wrestling and struggling with trying to figure out who this Jesus is. And with every chapter in the book of Mark, there's more and more and more evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, but the disciples are more and more and more clueless, oblivious, and ignorant. We find in chapter 6, he's walking on water. They were all terrified. They're still no closer to understanding who Jesus is. And then we get to chapter 8, and it's even more startling because he feeds another 4,000. The disciples are distracted by the Pharisees who are arguing. They're having an intense discourse on bread, of all things. Listen, what should the disciples know at this point in time? 
At the very least, they should know that Jesus puts on a pretty good banquet. That he can do a lot with little. He's fed 5,000. They followed him around. He's fed another 4,000. But their understanding of Jesus is so limited. They just don't understand who he is, even though they spent three years with him on the road, watching him teach, moving in people's lives, performing the miracles. Can you tense the anticipation? I think about this. If you were a leader, a manager of anything, and you had a vision, and you knew that you had the capacity and the ability to equip and mobilize and inspire people to get it done, how frustrated would you be in that situation if people weren't listening, taking notes, taking it in, processing, evaluating, strategizing, planning, and following through on that? That'd be a pretty tough place to be in life, to be surrounded with people that just couldn't see, hear, or respond. And we can see that Jesus just unleashes on them in chapter 8, verses 17 through 18. Jesus is fed up. He's had enough. He's ran out of patience. He's upset with the progress today. And he turns to his disciples and he says, don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. Don't you remember anything in life? Don't you understand? Can't you remember? Can't you? It's like, it's like Jesus is with adults, and he uh, breaks out. I remember, you know those coloring books, right? And you're a kid, and it's got one, two, three. It's got the dots, and you draw on the dots. And the more dots that you connect the dots, you get a sense of it. Now, as adults, I open up the book, and I go, that's a chicken. That's a cow. That's a truck. I get it. I don't have to connect the dots, right? But he's working with connected dots with his disciples. And he's trying to connect the dots for his disciples. And they're just not getting the picture. And he's frustrated. Their expectations, their wants, their desires, just like the Pharisees, are clashing against the one true God. And he's simply not going to yield. He's not going to bend. He's not going to be domesticated. I know, I'm speaking from personal experience. I've tried to domesticate Jesus in my life. I've tried to control Jesus in my life. I've tried to be the king and I let him be the prince. Let me tell you, it just doesn't work out well. It's frustrating. It's hopeless. In fact, you'll find yourself extremely angry and disoriented with God altogether. And if we push and push and push and we try to domesticate him, we're going to get angrier and angrier and angrier because the one true God will never bow down to David Lemoyne. He's just never going to bow down and say, listen, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm going to follow you. It's just never going to happen. And we laugh and we chuckle, but we've all tried to tame Jesus in one sense or another. 
The demons tried to tame them. The Pharisees and Sadducees tried to tame them. The disciples tried to tame them. The crowds tried to tame them. And he made person after person after person upset because he wouldn't bow down to their wishes and their expectations. Back to the Grand Canyon. I remember standing there as a, a, a young boy, and you could just kind of feel uh, the wind just kind of, it's like a big, it's like a big bowl, and the wind just kind of swirls around, and then it kind of comes up, and at times when it comes up, it sounds like a freight train, and it'd come up and kind of just hit you and uh, blow your hair, and it's just an amazing uh, physical uh, feeling, the sensation of standing there and feeling that come over you as you stand on one of the largest holes in the world, because that's what it is, it's a hole, but we're mesmerized by that. And as a small kid, what do you usually do when you stand in an empty hallway or an empty room or on the rim of the Grand Canyon? You yell, hello, 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 right? Can you imagine my parents and three kids? David, 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 David. My brother would say something. And then my sister would say something. Then you hear your dad or your mom in the back. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Right? Right? Let's, let's be honest. You know, family of five uh, uh, touring around Arizona in a Grand Torino, we were always fighting over who was going to have to sit in the center of the back seat because there was that hump, right? I want to let you in on something. We were going to the Grand Canyon, and we always fought. I, got, I get along very well with my brother. He's my closest friend. He lives in uh, just north of Detroit. I love him dearly. Great guy. Okay? But listen, I'd go to fisticuffs over having to sit on that hump in the back of that Grand Torino, right? And it is hot. And my parents pulled over and we had our lunch because that's what we did. Uh, quite honestly, there weren't a whole lot of McDonald's between us and the Grand Canyon. And my parents more than likely couldn't afford to feed a family of five at McDonald's to begin with. And so we'd get out and we'd have our picnic lunch. And then we'd try to rearrange who was going to sit there. And my dad told me, it's your turn, David. It's your turn. You're going to have to sit in the hump. And I looked at my brother and I thought to myself, there's just no way I'm going to sit in the hump. And uh, so I was wrestling with my brother and I was upset. Uh, with my brother that he wasn't going to have to sit in the hump and I sat there and I sat in the hump and I was stewing because I had to sit there in the hump and my brother was sitting there laughing and chuckling and making uh, fun of me because I had to sit in the hump and I turned around and I wanted a few times there's only been twice in 18 years I turned and I punched my brother right in his nose and his nose popped and blood started coming out all over the place and he started crying and my dad pulled that grand torino on the side of that arid, dry uh, highway, and he pulled, out of that, he pulled me out of that car, and he put the board of education against the seat of understanding, and would you not know that? I never thought for a moment that I would ever punch my brother in the nose again. I was just upset over that, right? I don't even know where I'm going with that, but the Grand Canyon, I'm standing there. We finally arrived and I'm echoing, and I'm saying things. It's the size of Rhode Island. And I want to propose to you, since inception of humanity, and especially since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we think the Grand Canyon is huge. But think about how much deeper the human soul is.
And I believe that God has been saying to all of humanity, and I think as we get closer and closer and closer to his second coming, the voice is getting stronger and stronger and stronger and more forceful and more forceful because we're running out of time and he's anxious. He came to seek and save that which is lost for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that God's Holy Spirit is saying, who am I? Who am I? It's like Jesus is standing on the rim of the soul of all humanity collectively, and he's saying, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I am. I am. I am. I am. I am. Jesus pulls his disciples aside. He wants to head in a different direction. And he talks to his disciples and he says, hey, listen, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, you know, you're John the Baptist, you're Elijah, you're one of the prophets. And, you know, I think about Jesus. If I was in that situation and said, man, they think you're like Elijah. I'm thinking all-star already. Right? Oh, no, better yet, they think that you're a prophet. Ooh, ooh, I got hidden mystery. I, I, I have an understanding that other people don't have, and I can dispense that. I'm feeling, if I'm Jesus, I'm pretty, feeling pretty good about myself. They're comparing me to prophets and to Elijah, right? Not him. Uh-uh, that's a step down. That's a big step down. And the disciples know what the next question is because by now they've probably figured out that Jesus is really good at setting people up to get them to the right place, the right time, and the right moment so he can share the right word. And he, they can smell the cheese in the trap because it has nothing about them. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Who do you say that I am? And it's a moment of inspiration. It's a moment of revelation coming into the disciples' souls. It's a moment of concession on the part of Peter. It's a moment of humility. It's a moment of worship. It's a moment of adoration. It's a moment of surrender. And Peter looks to him and says, you are the Mashiach. You're the Messiah. You're the one true living God. You are the one of the ages. You are alpha. You are omega. You're everything in between. You are the Jesus. You are the Messiah. You're Mashiach. Do you understand what the probability is of Peter coming to that confession as a Jewish man? We have no idea what it took to bring a Jewish man to the place who had been in synagogues under teacher after teacher after teacher after teacher, after Pharisee after Pharisee, after the Talmud, after the Pentateuch. He had been taught over and over and over again who the Messiah was and who the Messiah was. This is an absolute miracle that Peter could say, you are the Messiah. 
Heidi uh, here uh, is in our small group, and I don't know if you had the opportunity to meet Heidi. Heidi is, uh, she's, like, uh, she's like my son, Benny. She's very quiet, but you know, quiet rivers run really deep. And so when Heidi opens up and she shares in small group, everybody needs to pause and stop and listen because she's dispensing it and she's putting it out. But Heidi is at UConn and she's working on her PhD in math, right? Now, that's great. I barely got through algebra, but I want to share you uh, the probability so that we have some sense of understanding what it took for Peter to come to the place where he could confess that Jesus was the Messiah. Here's an illustration for you. You take out a quarter and you put an X on that quarter. And then you get a, you back up several dump trucks up against the border of Texas. And then you stack two feet of quarters on every square inch of the entire state of Texas. And then you take that one quarter with an X on it and you bury it somewhere in the state of Texas. And then you take a blind man by the hand, and you get him into Texas, and you say, now find that quarter. That's the mathematical probability that Peter would be able to piece together over 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's not like he just woke up and said, wow, he's the Messiah. It's like, he's the blind man. And he's covering every inch of Texas. And he's wading through two feet of quarters, knocking them down. And he's blindfolded, and he's trying to look for the one quarter with an X on. So when Peter says, you are Mashiach, you are the Messiah, you are the one true God, he is defeating all the odds stacked against him. He's not supposed to be saying, you're the Messiah. He's not supposed to be recognizing Jesus for who he really is. Jesus bumped into hundreds of people, thousands of people over the course of three years. And only a few small, select group understood who he was. And they were demons. You get that? Demons followed Jesus around, and he said, you are the one true God. You're the Holy One. And Jesus said, shut up. Shut up. I don't want unholy, evil things pronouncing my name and acknowledging me as the one true God. I want humanity. I want the Holy Spirit to speak the Holy Word. I want my work, my way, my will. I want the cross to be tattooed and burned on the souls of humanity. Do you feel the odds? And we sit here and we think, wow, I'm saved. And we take that for granted. Notice what Jesus didn't ask the disciples. Jesus didn't say, hey, fellas, how often in the past did you spend, go to the synagogue? Jesus didn't ask the disciples, hey, when your cell phone rings, is it a worship song? Jesus didn't say, hey, I really like that Christian tattoo. That's a powerful witness. He didn't say, how many of you have the fish symbol on the back of your chariot or on your saddle? Notice that he didn't say, he didn't say, how many of you guys are running? This is, this is a 
I'm not going to say it. How m- Thank you, Lord, for checking me. How, how many T-shirts have you worn with Bible verses on it? Notice the questions that Jesus isn't asking are the important questions that we tend to ask because, Pastor, we're religious, and that's kind of how we gauge and rate people is by the checks and the balances. Notice that he didn't ask. He said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Listen, I'm wrapping it up here. This is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, and it's a conversation that he has with us over and over and over and over again. And he comes into our life, and he says, define the terms of the relationship. It's a DTR moment. Anybody ever dated and you have a DTR moment with the person that you're with, right? You want to know the rules of the game, right? You want to know if this relationship is going to be, uh, do we have the same goals? Do we have the same priorities? Do we have uh, some sense of character and integrity? You want to understand what the rules of the dating game are, right? We've come to a place where part of the rules are, is do you want to have a monogamous relationship or do you want to have an open relationship, right? That's to define the rules. That's the DTR of relationships. And that's the same conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? It's not because he's waiting for their answer to give them a rubber stamp and say you're correct. He wants to be remembered and known as he fully is and will be once we see him face to face completely with 2020 vision. And this is the relationship that he had. Define the terms of the relationship. This is the humbling part about it. He invites us into a relationship And he sets the rules of the relationship. And that's where the struggle, that's where the battle, that's where the war begins. He doesn't invite us into a relationship and says, now, David, set the rules of this relationship. You know why? Because he knows I'm going to mess that thing up. And it's going to be in a matter of days, if not minutes, If I'm setting the rules of that relationship, Jesus wants to have a relationship with us based on his rules, his principles, his guidelines. And this is where he begins. All have sinned. It's the first rule of the game. It's the first rule of the relationship. All have sinned. And missed a mark. And then he follows that up and he says, all have sinned. And then the wages of sin is death. And what he says is, I'm offering you, this is the rules, I'm offering you a relationship like none other. You come to me, you acknowledge I'm Messiah, the Holy One. You acknowledge I'm the one true God. And you got to acknowledge that you're a sinner and you missed a mark and you fall short of the glory of God. And we have to acknowledge 
that there's a distance far greater that if Keith was standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and I was on the other, we have to acknowledge that the distance between us two would pale into comparison to the distance between us and Jesus. We've missed a mark. We've fallen short of the glory of God. He's holy. How do we close the gap? Jesus came, died on the cross to tell us die. It's finished. And from that point forward, his spirit meets us along the road over and over and over and over again to challenge our expectations, to challenge our rules, and says, who do you say that I am? Wrapping it up here. I'll preach as long as that worship team stays out there in the lobby. I've weighed in twice, Pastor. Don't hold it on me. I've waved them in two, three times. I'll just keep going. And kind of roll on up here. It's DTR time. He's asking us as individuals, who do you say that I am? And here's a word for the church collectively. Who do you say that I am? Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.